Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Uh, who is excited about summer? All right, let's, uh, let's do a bit of a survey. Raise your hand if you are going on some sort of vacation this summer. Okay, hands down. Now, uh, I'll ask three questions. Some of these might overlap. Uh, raise your hand if you're going to a beach location. Okay. What about a city slash theme park or something like that? Okay. What about a mountainous location? Okay. If you had to choose, if you're either team beach or team mountain, raise your hand for team beach. Let's do team mountain. Oh, mountains win. It's great. Attack. Uh, I am, uh, I'm Team Mountain. I love uh, mountains. I love hiking in particular. You might hate hiking. If so, tough. You don't have a mic, so you just have to listen to my illustration about, uh, about hiking. So imagine, if you will, you're hiking in the mountains. You've got all the gear, which is one thing I really love about hiking. I love all of the Yeti and Camelback and all that kind of stuff. So imagine you have the hiking boots, you have the Camelback, uh, you're loaded up, and, uh, and so you take up off, uh, you got some snacks loaded up, and so you take uh, off up the mountain, and for the first bit of the hike, you're chugging along well, then you get a little further, and you get to a steeper grade, and you eventually get tired, and so you need to stop, and you need to take a break. And there's two types of people when it comes to hiking, those who feel like any sort of break is a waste, and that, uh, you, you know, the goal is to never stop. And so the, 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 the end is just the, the destination, which is redundant. Uh, but uh, the goal is just to reach the destination in as quick a time as possible. There's others who really appreciate that uh, break. And they like to slow down. I'm in the latter category. Maybe you're the kind of person who just wants to, you can't wait to get up to the top of the mountain but, uh, but for me, those breaks along the way are some of my favorite parts of the hike. That's why, in particular, I like hiking in the mountains and not just hiking around, you know, Irwin Farms or something like that. I like hiking in the mountains because as I'm sitting there, I get to look out and just see the beauty and the grandeur and uh, to smell the smells of nature and all of those sorts of things. So I'm actually able to stop and enjoy the view. And in one sense, I'm resting from the hike, but in another sense, I'm actually actively engaging in that moment of rest. So a good hike for me has this healthy balance of walking and also resting. And that's kind of like a journey through, a hike through the book of Matthew. Last week's text, and in fact, the last couple of weeks' texts have been somewhat exhausting. Last week's text in particular, was really action-packed. You, you literally have Jesus facing off against Satan, and so that's pretty exciting. They're there in the wilderness, and he's being tempted by Satan. Pretty soon, we'll fast forward, we'll get into the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody loves that, and then we'll see him begin to perform miracles and do all of those sorts of things. But today's text isn't as fast-paced. It isn't as action-packed. It's much more slow. 
And I would encourage you the same way that if you're on a hike, you can use that rest. That's actually something that can be encouraging to you to view our text today like that. It's taking a break from a lot of the action of Matthew's gospel, but it's not taking a break from the main point, which is that we would see Jesus more clearly. This is not a waste. This is an opportunity for us to kind of get our bearings and look at our surroundings and catch our breath. And in another sense, have our breath taken away as we consider Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in together. <coughs> First, ask you to pray for yourself. Next, will you pray for those around you? The Lord would collectively apply his word to our hearts. And then lastly, would you pray for me? The thing that I always ask is for clarity and boldness and so forth, but also just for a lingering cough, non-COVID cough that I've had. And uh, so just pray that the Lord would give me relief so you don't have to suffer through that. So Father, we're grateful for your love and mercy to us. We're grateful for Jesus. We pray that you would help us to see him more clearly, that your spirit would uh, illumine our eyes to his glory, to his beauty, to his majesty, to his kingdom. We pray these things because you're good and you desire to do good things for your children. And so we pray all these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen. Look at Matthew 4.12. We'll begin there. Matthew 4.12, which says, Now when he, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So let's begin with a little bit of context here, kind of back up, set the stage, consider what's happening in Matthew's gospel. We begin the book of Matthew by looking at the genealogy of Jesus, which shows that he is the son of Abraham and he's the son of David. He is this heir of the promises that were made to all of the patriarchs of Israel, and he is the ultimate king of Israel. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Christ from Christos, the Greek word, which is the same as Messiah, the, the Hebrew word Mashiach, uh, which means the anointed one. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed. In a sense, Jesus is all three of those prophet. He's the greatest prophet. He's the greatest priest, and he is the greatest king. And so we saw that in uh, our first work, uh, our first week in Matthew. Then we saw some of the uh, the events associated with his birth. In his early years, especially the themes of the fulfillment of prophecy and also God's sovereignty as he's determining and, and, and directing the, uh, the life of, uh, of his son to avoid danger and fulfill prophecy and so forth. Then we met John the Baptist, who we've, uh, whom we've spent the past few weeks talking about. And he's the, old, uh, these, these the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation of this forerunner of the Messiah, we saw that, uh, that Old Testament uh, prophecy had held out that there was going to be one who was like Elijah, who was going to come and be the forerunner, the, the one who sets the table, so to speak, for the coming Messiah. And so John the Baptist fulfills that role. He even wears the same clothes 
as Elijah in order to show that he is uh, in the spirit of Elijah. So John the Baptist, who is this fulfillment of Old Testament expectation, he's the forerunner to Christ's ministry, and he's baptizing people in the wilderness, and he's preaching a message of repentance and light of the kingdom. And then Jesus comes to him, and Jesus himself is baptized, not because Jesus is sinful, but rather because Jesus is identifying with us as sinners. So it's the fulfillment of, quote, all righteousness. And then Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. We saw that last week. So that catches us up. So sometime thereafter, sometime after Jesus has his little battle with Satan in the wilderness, the text doesn't specify exactly how much later, but sometime after John baptized Jesus, John was arrested. We're actually going to read about that arrest all the way in chapter 14, but Matthew just kind of takes it for granted at this point that his audience who's reading this would be familiar with the fact that John had been arrested. So for now, he's just going to say that, uh, that uh, John has been arrested. Uh, kind of the summary of that, John had publicly reproved Herod, who was the king at that, at that point, for a number of indiscretions. So Herod had had him locked up. Again, we'll get to that in chapter 14. In the meantime, the Gospel of John, if we were to flip over to that, seems to suggest that Jesus was ministering in the area of, uh, of uh, Judea for some time. So in other words, it seems like if we kind of relate the events that are happening in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, if we take those events and we relate those to what's happening in John's gospel, it seems like the period of time between when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and when the events of this passage in Matthew 4 take place, there's a bit of a delay. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, John talks about Jesus actually ministering in the area of Judea for, uh, for quite some time. But once uh, John the Baptist was arrested... Jesus then withdraws from Judea, and he moves back north. <clears throat> so remember what we've seen about Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in the south. It's in Judea. But then he was exiled to Egypt. So Jesus is exiled to Egypt in order to, uh, to avoid uh, Herod's wrath. And then he comes back. But he doesn't come back to Bethlehem. He comes back instead to Nazareth. And Nazareth was in the north. <coughs> Excuse me. So he's heading back home in a sense. As we'll see in the next verse, he doesn't move back, though, to his hometown. He actually moves uh, to another city in the area, but at least moves to the area from which uh, he had kind of grown up. So what do we know about Galilee? This is the area that he is moving back to. What do we know about Galilee in the first century? We know that it was, uh, it was relatively small, at least as it relates to actual size, geographic size, but it was really densely populated. And this was kind of a new development in the past 100 years of, uh, of the, basically the first century. <clears throat> Prior to that, it had been really sparsely populated, but at least at this point, it was fairly densely populated. <clears throat> it was also on a major trade route from the east and from areas like Babylon and Assyria, if they were to go to the Mediterranean Sea, they would typically have to pass right through Galilee. So it was really open to trade. It was open to ideas. 
Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, much more cosmopolitan. Judea, on the other hand, being in the south and being among the mountains <clears throat> and not on the direct trade route, it was much more out of the way, it was less cosmopolitan. It had less influence of surrounding cultures and so forth. It was much more sort of uh, monolithic. Jewish culture permeated Judea in a way that it didn't as much in Galilee. So as a result, Galilee had a very large Jewish population, but there was also a very strong mix of Gentiles as well. So we'll see that in a bit. So Jesus withdraws to Galilee. So why does he withdraw to Galilee? It says, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now that's not a purpose statement. In the Greek, if you look there, it doesn't say because he heard that John had been arrested. It just says when he heard. So it doesn't explicitly say that John's arrest caused him to move. So why does he move? I would imagine, at least because a uh, part of it, is because of John's arrest. At least because, uh, at least part of it is because there was too much heat in Judea. This word that's translated as withdrew that you see there uh, in this verse, <clears throat> that word that's translated as withdrew has already shown up four other times in our study of Matthew. <clears throat> and each of them have the idea of withdrawing for the sake of protection. So we've seen this word a few times in the book of Matthew, and each time it has the sense of withdrawing from some sort of danger in order to be protected. Pause for cough break. So why does Jesus want to be protected? Think about that. Why does Jesus want to be protected? And the answer is not because he's just all concerned with his rights and all concerned with his life, rather because he's on mission. That's what we're going to see as we look throughout the book of Matthew, is that Jesus is always on mission, and his goal is always to do the will of the Father. My, uh, my work is to do the will of the one who sent me, as Jesus would say. His work hasn't yet been accomplished, and so we'll see that Jesus is going to seek protection, the same way that God had, had already maneuvered the events of his life to protect him when he was an infant and when he was a young child and, uh, and so forth. So his time hasn't yet come. Remember, all of Jesus' life is moving toward his death. He knows this. So it's not like he's avoiding death. He's avoiding death until everything has been accomplished. All right, so we see some intentionality here. He's on mission, and so you see that intentionality here in this text. And this isn't the first time that Jesus kind of moving from place to place has been marked by providence, by God's sovereignty, by the fulfillment of prophecy. Again, we mentioned this before. While he was in the womb, he was taken to Bethlehem. <clears throat> That's in order to fulfill prophecy. After that, he's taken to Egypt to escape Herod, not only to escape Herod, but also to fulfill the expectation that the Messiah, like Israel herself, would come out of Egypt. That's a typological theme that he's fulfilling. Then he goes to Nazareth to fulfill the expectation that he would be a Nazarene, which either means that he would be an outsider or it means that he would be the branch, which in Hebrew is netzer, like Naz Nazareth. So another reason that he withdraws is in order to fulfill prophecy. He, he uh, withdraws in order to uh, seek protection, 
and then also to fulfill prophecy. We'll get to that shortly. First, let's see more of the context by looking at verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So he's left Judea. He's left the south. He's gone back north to Galilee. He originally goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, but he leaves there and ends up in Capernaum. And Capernaum is going to kind of be his base of operations. Why does he leave Nazareth? Again, Matthew doesn't say. Luke, in particular, is going to tell the story of Jesus going back to Nazareth. And while Jesus is there in Nazareth, he's going to be in a, uh, in a synagogue, and he's going to read from Isaiah 61, this passage about how he is the fulfillment of this expectation that light is going to be proclaimed to those in darkness and sight to those who are blind and justice to those who are oppressed and so forth. And so Jesus is going to say, I'm the fulfillment of that. And how do the, Nazar the Nazarenes respond? Thumbs up or thumbs down? They say thumbs down. All right, They don't like that message. They get so riled up that they actually want to try to throw him off a cliff. Literally, that's what they want to do. They want to kill him. So this is probably what causes him to say peace out to Nazareth. So he ends up in Capernaum. Capernaum is on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually not a sea. It's a lake. In fact, Israel as a whole, if you want to think of Israel, you can think of it the entire land. If you're ever looking at a map of Israel, if you flip back in your Bible to the section with the maps or something like that, the whole of Israel is, uh, is oriented around three bodies of water, three different bodies of water. To the north, you have the Sea of Galilee, so picture a small circle, and then running south from that small circle, you have the Jordan River, and it's basically running pretty straight south, and then you have a bigger circle or oval or something like that down in the south, and that is the Dead Sea. And that's basically where all of it is oriented. So anything around the Sea of Galilee, that's Galilee. Anything around the Dead Sea to the south, that is Judea. And, uh, and so the area around Galilee was the northern kingdom. If you're reading the Old Testament, you read about the northern kingdom of Israel. Whereas if you read about the southern kingdom of Judah, that's in the south there around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and the Dead Sea. And, uh, and so forth. And if you remember your Old Testament trivia, the land of Israel was originally allotted into how many different parcels? Twelve. Why was it originally allotted into twelve distinct parcels? Because of the twelve tribes of Israel. So he's in the part of Israel that's originally allotted to which two tribes? Zebulun and, if you just look up on the screen, you got it, right? <laughs> Zebulun and Naphtali, or Naphtali, or Naphtali, or something like that. Uh, but he's in this area that originally, was originally allotted to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. But by this time, uh, by the, the, the time after the, uh, the exiles from Assyria and Babylon... Uh, tribal allotments weren't all that significant. So why does Matthew mention it? Why does Ma Matthew mention these, uh, these tribal allotments that are no longer really functioning by the first century as a part of Jewish culture? The answer is 
in verses 14 through 16, it sets up this prophetic expectation. Let's look at that. Matthew 4, 14 through 16. So that, now this is a purpose statement, the reason that he went here, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So this is why Matthew mentions Jesus settling and doesn't merely mention the name of the city, but also mentions the tribal allotment, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order to show that there's this fulfillment of messianic expectation. Remember, that is a major theme of the book of Matthew's gospel. If you want to understand Matthew's gospel, you have to understand the Old Testament because a major motif of the book of Matthew is the fulfillment of prophetic expectation. Sometimes that's direct fulfillment. Sometimes that's typological fulfillment. If those terms don't make sense, go back and listen uh, to the series when we started the book of Matthew, when we walked through those terms uh, before. This is one of the larger quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. One of the largest direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it's from the book of Isaiah chapter 9 in particular. So let's look at that. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. <clears throat> First cough break. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them uh, has light shone. By the way, if you were to look at that and you say, why doesn't Matthew exactly match that word for word? There's a couple of uh, reasons. Number one, because Isaiah is written in Hebrew. Matthew is written in Greek. So there's always going to be translation issues. Also, because um, the uh, authors of the New Testament aren't always going to give precise quotations. Sometimes they're trying to just give the sense of a passage and not actually quote it verbatim to the same standards that we would hold uh, today. So it's basically the exact same uh, quotation there that you see from Isaiah, although a couple of words might be different. And if you're a first century Jew and you read Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, or if you're reading Matthew 4 and this quotation of Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, you would know what comes right after that text. What comes after Isaiah 9, 2? It's a trick question. Isaiah 9, 3, right? You don't even need to know what it says. You can just say that, all right? So skip forward a few verses and look at Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. So just a few verses later. See if this sounds familiar. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So again, if you're a Jew and you're familiar with the Old Testament and you're reading Matthew's gospel and he quotes from Isaiah 9, the first two verses, your mind thinks about those two verses in context with this passage. So Matthew doesn't quote this passage, 6 through 7, 
But oftentimes, an author of the New Testament will quote a particular section of the Old Testament and expect its audience, his audience, to recognize the larger context. And the larger context is this messianic hope, this expectation of a son. And notice what is said of the son. The son is a king. He's going to sit on the throne of David. And he's not only going to sit on the throne of David in the same way that Solomon and Rehoboam and all of these other kings sat, but he's going to sit in in a way that's distinct from all of them because he's going to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's an eternal throne unlike all that have gone before him. So that's the larger context of Isaiah 9. But in the passage that Matthew actually quotes, there is this expectation that this king will be associated with the area around the Sea of Galilee. Now notice how that area around Galilee is described. Notice the the adjectives there. Notice the different depictions. There's darkness. It's the region and shadow of death. Why was it described this way? Well, one of the reasons is because it was cut off. It was cut off from the the center of Jewish hope and custom. Think about all of the advantages you had if you lived in the south that you didn't have if you lived in the north. If you lived in the south, you you had easy access to the temple. You had easy access to the major feasts and festivals of Israel. If you were in the north, you were somewhat cut off from that. You were two, three days' journey from those things. This reference to Galilee as a place of darkness makes even more sense when you understand it in Isaiah's time. You understand it within the context of Isaiah writing. He's probably writing this around the time of the 8th century collapse of the northern kingdom. So when Isaiah writes the land of darkness, the land was dark. The people had been exiled. The people of the northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken to Assyria. So it was dark. There was no light there. There was no Jewish hope. There was no, uh, nothing but hardship and deprivation and a lack of clarity about direction as God abandoned his people. They've just been exiled. Plus, Galilee was known for being a place of a much more mixed and diverse population. And diversity within our context today is seen as a very good thing. But from a Jewish context, it's not seen as a good thing at all. That's the pretext for intermingling and and syncretism and so forth. In fact, notice notice the way that it's referred in uh, in Matthew's text uh, or in Isaiah also as Galilee of the Gentiles. So this was a land that was uh, overshadowed by pagan darkness. And yet even that is intentional. We'll see another one of the major themes that Matthew is going to develop throughout his uh, gospel is the idea of the inclusion of Gentiles. We've already seen that to some extent, right? Jesus' genealogy, it includes various Gentiles like Rahab and Ruth. We've seen it in the story of Jesus' birth, the Jewish authorities. They reject Jesus, right? Herod wants to kill baby Jesus. Whereas the Magi, who are these pagan wise men, they recognize his authority. So the stage has already been set 
for this theme that will continue, this drumbeat you'll continue to see throughout the book of Matthew for the idea that the gospel is not restricted to the, Gentile, to the Jews, but it includes the Gentiles as well. So this ministry amongst a more ethnically and religiously diverse culture also continues the theme of the idea of a reversal of expectation. That's something we'll see throughout the book of Matthew. We've seen it already before. You would expect a king not to be born in a manger, but rather in a palace. You would expect a king to, to be celebrated by his people, not exiled. You would expect a king to live near the temple and to live around his fellow Jews, not to be ministering on the periphery of Jewish society, in Galilee of all places. This connects back to what we talked about quite a bit over the past year as we walked through 1 Corinthians together. If you remember there, one of the major themes of 1 Corinthians is that God works in these mysterious ways, these ways that reverse our expectations. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame who? The strong. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame who? The wise. He does things in ways that reverse and invert our expectations. So Jesus could have ministered in some large cosmopolitan metropolis. He could have ministered to the intellectual and religious elite of his day, but instead, as we'll see as we walk through the book, he does the overwhelming majority of his ministry in the countryside, small towns up north, to a rural population that's relatively irrelevant and insignificant. And with each stop in Christ's journey, there's this little, bright, uh, uh, this little uh, glimmer, this little flicker of light that's brought into the darkness. If Galilee is described as this land of darkness and Jesus is the light of the world, he's bringing light as he brings the kingdom, this theme that we'll talk about shortly. But first, I want to draw your attention to one more thing that you see in the Isaiah 9 quotation there in Matthew 4. Notice the phrase, the way of the sea. There was actually a road in ancient times called the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. It was, connected, it was what connected the east to the Mediterranean Sea, not the Sea of Galilee, but the Mediterranean Sea. And it passed right through Galilee, like I mentioned earlier. That was actually the road that the Assyrians used to conquer Israel in the 8th century. That was the road that the Assyrians had came in on in order to get to Israel in the 8th century and to plunge it into darkness. Which is interesting, this little sign of God's providence. That darkness that Assyria had used this road to plunge Israel into, that darkness lasted about 750 years. And then now what's happening? Jesus, who is the light of the world, is bringing light by walking that same road. The same road that the Assyrians had used to bring darkness, Jesus is using to bring light. The same road that was used to bring destruction, not only to the Jews, is now being used to bring salvation to the Gentiles as well. Let's look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This phrase, from that time, we'll see it a few times in Matthew and every time it signifies kind of a shift in the narrative, kind of focuses our attention 
on something significant is happening here. So there's a shift. We're now moving into Jesus's public ministry at this point. And that ministry consists of preaching. You'll see other elements of his ministry in future weeks, such as healing and so forth. But for now, Matthew is prioritizing preaching as being primary. That's one of the unique themes of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is centered around these major discourses that Jesus gives. We're all most familiar with the one that we'll see here in a couple of weeks, which is the Sermon on the Mount. That's the major sort of discourse, the first one, but there's going to be a number of them that we'll see. And so Matthew in particular is emphasizing Jesus' preaching ministry, prioritizing that as being prior, uh, primary in his public ministry. So what's he preaching? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that's the exact same thing that we saw John the Baptist preaching. So we're going to repeat some of the things we said a few weeks ago, but that's okay because this is a summary of the entire book of Matthew. If you want to know what does the book of Matthew teach, it's this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've said this before, but the thing that Jesus talks about more than anything else is the kingdom. More than faith or grace or love or hell or money or whatever it is that you've heard, Jesus talked about more than anything else. If you heard something other than kingdom, then you heard wrong. Because that's what he talks about more than anything else, more than any other topic. Jesus is going to talk about the kingdom. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you want to know what Jesus loved, if you want to know what Jesus was about, if you want to know what Jesus treasured, you have to know about the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of, uh, of heaven is like a grain of, or a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a net thrown into the sea. Only with difficulty can a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. To Peter, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. If you want to summarize the theme of Jesus' ministry, it's one word, kingdom. What was Jesus about? What was his mission? What was his goal? What was his passion? What was his purpose? What was his telos? It's the kingdom. So what is the kingdom? In its most simple definition, the kingdom refers to the rule and the reign of God. We think of a kingdom, we typically think of a place. You think of the United Kingdom. You think of a, a particular island. That's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not the kingdom of God. It's not a place. It's a power. It's authority. The kingdom is the rule and reign of God. What's that mean? Well, think back to the beginning. In the beginning, God creates and his creation is good, and he places man and woman in a garden. And that's really significant. Of all the places that he could have placed them, he could have placed them in, you know, Disneyland or something like that. Could have placed them at the beach, could have placed them in the mountains, wherever it might be. But the image, the particular image that he uses there is the image of a garden. And that's really significant. The fact that Genesis speaks of a garden is very important. It's important theologically, it's important literarily. Because in the ancient Near East, gardening was actually the work of kings. They're probably not the ones that are actually out there doing the work. They probably have gardeners and so forth. But gardening was seen as a king's task. For example, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about how he built these elaborate gardens. 
Or if you think back to uh, elementary school and you think back to the seven wonders of the ancient world, you think to the idea of the hanging gardens of Babylon, these beautiful elaborate gardens that Nebuchadnezzar had built. The idea was kind of the more ostentatious, the more luxurious, the more beautiful and ornate the garden was, the more it demonstrated the might and the wealth and the glory of that king. So ancient kings would build these gardens But then like an artist would sign his painting, so kings would sign their work in a sense. And they would do so by placing in that garden a statue, an obelisk, a memorial, a sign, a symbol. It was typically an image of themselves. It would be a bust of themselves. So they would sign this garden as a way of showing Nebuchadnezzar rules here, or whatever it might be. So what does God do? In the book of Genesis, he makes a garden, and he places in that garden mankind. And what does he call mankind? His image. The exact same idea. In other words, if you were a reader that's familiar with ancient literature, the minute you read about someone making a garden... And placing an image in that garden, you would instantly think, this is a king. That's who is being described here. Whatever else I know or don't know about this king, I know Yahweh, the Lord God, creator of the heavens and the earth, is king. He rules. He reigns. That's what the author is uh, intending to communicate. Mankind, as his image, is a representative of his rule and reign. So that's the beginning of the story, but then an enemy enters into the garden. The enemy deceives the woman who then entices her husband and they eat of the forbidden tree, and in that moment something happens. Theologians call this the fourfold division of the fall. If you want to know just how drastic the fall is, if you want to know how, how serious and how cosmic in its scope sin is, think about all of the divisions that take place. In that moment, man is divided from God. That's what we tend to think about when we think about sin. We think about it as a division between God and man. But not only is man divided from God, man is divided from his wife. Think about all the marital discord that exists in this world. Domestic abuse, adultery, divorce, whatever it might be. All of that is a result of the fall. So man is divided from God. Man is divided from his wife. Man is divided from fellow humans. Within one generation, man has already killed another man. So he's uh, uh, separated from, divided from God, from his wife, from fellow humans, and even from creation itself. No longer will the earth uh, bear its fruit easily, but it's cursed with thorns and thistles and so forth. And with that fourfold division comes all kinds of consequences. Everything that's wrong with the world today is a result of what happened in that day. Sickness, death, natural disasters, school shootings, cancer, whatever it might be. So imagine a world without those things. Imagine a world without what happened at Uvalde this past week. A world without war. A world without cancer, a world without death, a world without sorrow. 
That's the kingdom. That's what we're moving towards. That's the rule and reign of God, unhindered, fully uh, consummated. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, this has begun. It's been inaugurated. In my birth, in my life, in my ministry, in my death, in my resurrection, in my ascension, the kingdom has begun. The Israelites had this expectation of a coming kingdom and a coming king. And one of the markers of that future kingdom, how do, how do we know, if you're, if you're an ancient Jew, how would you know the kingdom has come? How would you know that, that day has dawned? And the answer was this. When, the, when God ushers in the kingdom, the dead will raise and death will be no more. That was the sign. And notice, what does Christ do? He raises the dead. He himself is even raised from the grave. But also notice, if we look around, we see people still die. So how can the kingdom be here if there's still death and there's still sin and there's still sickness? And the answer is that while it has begun, it's not been consummated. The kingdom is already, but also not yet. This is what's known as inaugurated eschatology. There is a sense in which there is this overlap between the the present age and the age to come. And we're living in that overlap. Not everything that's true of the present age is true of us. Not everything that's true of the coming kingdom is true of us. We live in an overlap of these two ages. Think back again to the hiking analogy. Imagine that you're driving to Denver and you see the Rockies to your west in the distance and it looks like the mountains are stacked on top of each other. And then as you get closer and closer and closer, you begin to realize those mountains which for miles away appeared to be right next to each other, are actually separated by miles. Well, that's what happens with this Jewish expectation of the kingdom. They thought that there would be merely one coming of the king. And when that king comes, he will defeat death, and he will judge his enemies, and the dead would be raised, and eternity of peace and justice would reign. And so those days were conflated. Those days were viewed as though they overlapped. They were conflated into one day. In the New Testament, we see that that's actually a misnomer. That what's actually happening there is those days aren't the same day. There's actually this delay between them. There isn't just one advent of Christ. There's two. These mountains, which seem to be stacked on top of each other, are actually a distance apart. He comes once to offer himself to inaugurate the kingdom, and it will come again to fully and finally consummate the kingdom by destroying death and the devil and sin. So that's the kingdom. The kingdom is the rule and reign of God without any rebels, any obstacles, any hindrances. In some sense, it's here now, but in another sense, we've already waited 2,000 years. So that's the kingdom. Now, why is it called the kingdom of heaven? I ask this in particular because Matthew is going to be unique In all of the Gospels for this phrase, the phrase kingdom of heaven appears 32 times in the New Testament. Every single one of them is in Matthew. You won't find this phrase, kingdom of heaven, anywhere else in all of the Bible. And you won't find it in extra biblical literature uh, either. It's a Matthean, unique sort of thing. 
What do the other gospels use in its place? They talk about the kingdom of God. So why? Why do they use kingdom of God, whereas Matthew uses kingdom of heaven? There have been a lot of theories on that. One of those is that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God refer to different realities. One is heavenly and the other is earthly or whatever it might be. The problem with that is that these phrases are used synonymously. In multiple places, Matthew is going to use the phrase kingdom of heaven. And you look up that exact same event in Mark or Luke, and they're going to use the phrase kingdom of God. So these things are synonymous. So why is there a difference? Another theory then says that Matthew uses kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God because he's a good Jew and he doesn't want to abuse the name of God, so he avoids using it. This is uh, something called circa, uh, circumlocution. Circumlocution. You're using a word to get around saying another word. Circum, like circumference or something. So that's another theory. Matthew doesn't use kingdom of heaven because he doesn't want to say the word God because he doesn't want to abuse the divine name. The problem with that is twofold. Number one, God's name isn't God. Right? That's, who, that, that's what he is. That's not who he is. His name is Yahweh. If you want a name that's given for God, there's other names that are given for God in Scripture. But God isn't his name. It's kind of his substance. It's what he is. All right? So that's the first reason that it would be strange for Matthew to avoid the word God, because that's not actually his name. The second reason is because Matthew doesn't actually avoid it. It's a really lazy theory because he uses the word God quite a bit. He uses the word God over 40 times in his gospel. He actually uses the phrase kingdom of God three times. So he uses kingdom of heaven 32 times, but he uses kingdom of God a few times. He uses it uh, three times. So if Matthew is trying to avoid saying God out of some sort of uh, sense of Jewish reverence, He's not very good at it, all right? So that's probably not a good theory either. So what is happening? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. As we'll see in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is going to trace this theme of heaven and earth. And heaven in general refers to the dwelling place of God. Earth in general, the dwelling place of man. And those were separated in the fall, all right? But in Christ, they're being uh, reunited They're being realigned. So Matthew uses the word heaven in the phrase kingdom of heaven to signify not only the place in which God dwells, but the same way that kingdom itself refers not to a place, but to a power. Kingdom of heaven refers to God's power, God's authority. And also it points to the reality that that hasn't fully come yet. There is this still contrast between heaven and earth that hasn't been fully bridged yet and won't be fully bridged until Jesus returns. And given that that contrast hasn't been bridged, that the kingdom of heaven stands at enmity with the kingdom of earth, what Christ, uh, I'm sorry, what Satan offered Christ in last week's text makes more sense. There is a sense in which Satan has authority over the kingdoms of the earth. So if you ever read that and you think, well, how does Satan offer? Christ, the kingdoms of earth, he doesn't have authority. There is a sense in which he has authority because of that contrast between heaven and earth. So given that that contrast hasn't been bridged, given that remaining enmity, how do we inherit the kingdom of God? How do we inherit the kingdom of heaven? And the answer, 
according to the text, is to repent. The message of the kingdom, which is the same as the message of the gospel, that should be drilled into your minds. Kingdom equals gospel, gospel equals kingdom. The message of the kingdom is one of both judgment and salvation. We've talked about this a number of times. Think back to the flood. We read our kids the flood account from Genesis. Every single time it rains, my daughter's now scared that it's going to flood. It's going to kill everybody. So now I have to explain floodplains to her and so forth. That's fun. But think back to the flood in Genesis. If I were to ask you, is that a question, is that a story of God's judgment or his deliverance? If you were thinking wisely, you would say, well, both. Hopefully you'd say both, right? It's judgment for the nations, but deliverance for Noah and his family. Or the same thing in the Red Sea. Is that about judgment or is that about deliverance? Again, both. It's judgment for Egypt, but it's deliverance for Israel. The same is true when it comes to the kingdom. In the coming kingdom of Jesus, there is both judgment and also deliverance. Deliverance for those who repent and judgment for those who don't. And the human heart hates this. We hate the idea of repentance. We hate the idea of dying to ourselves and uh, disavowing ourselves. We hate the idea of turning from sin because we love it. If we're honest with ourselves, John 3 says that people loved the darkness. That's us, every single one of us. So we hate repentance. There's this universal disinclination to repent. But what is true universally is even particularly prevalent in our culture today where the highest ethic is to be true to yourself. Rather than repent... Culture says double down, embrace your sexuality, indulge your feelings. You feel like you're trapped in the wrong gender, change. You want to be attracted to someone of the same sex, go for it. You want to be rich, go for it. Never tells you to repent, never tells you to change. You're good just as you are. Christ says this, repent. To see behind the facade of sin, to confess your need, to run to Christ. Not only for forgiveness, but also for transformation. I want to end with this uh, illustration. Anyone ever have the dream where they're still in school? Maybe you graduated uh, decades ago. You still have a dream. You didn't get some assignment done, so now you're not going to graduate. You just completely forgot you'd signed up for a class. You'd skipped it all semester, and now you're in trouble. Then what happens when you wake up? You wake up, and you realize, oh, it's just a dream. right? I'm not in school anymore. I don't have, I don't have to give it a second thought. But fortunately, that's kind of how some of us think about repentance. They think, oh, I did that. I did that when I was baptized. I did that when I was seven. I repented of my sins then. I was baptized then, I confessed my sins then, I repented then. I'm good. The problem with that is that you never outgrow or graduate from your need for repentance. It's not a one-time thing. We talked about this before. Martin Luther, first of his theses was that all of life is repentance. It's an hourly, daily process 
That's why Jared talks about self-examination this morning in theological equipping class. And he quoted from the great John Owen who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If the message of the gospel is the message of a kingdom, then you can see the severity, the gravity of what we're doing when we repent. It's cosmic. Your rebellion against God is not some light, trivial thing. You are rebelling against the cosmic king of all things, of all creation. So I want to close. Before I pray, I want to give you a few seconds, and I'll just ask you to think where your life might not be aligned with the kingdom. Think about where do you need to repent? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is there bitterness or discord with your spouse or with another family member or with a friend? Are you bitter towards a political party? Is your life marked by the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it more marked by the works of the flesh? So where does your life reflect a commitment to your own kingdom rather than Christ? Father, I confess that you're good and you do good. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to live lives of repentance, that we would experience genuine contrition for our sin. But I also confess that we will never repent and never confess of everything because of how deep our depravity goes. So I pray that you would lead us through repentance to joy. Lord, that we wouldn't be trapped in shame and condemnation, but that we might actually repent and trust that you are good and wise and loving and caring. And so we're grateful that your kingdom has come, and we pray that Jesus would come quickly. We pray it in his name. Amen.